Would you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians? We're moving into chapter 2 this morning. Uh, the title of the message is borrowing from the title of the series, First Things First. And this passage is uniquely tailored to why we called the series First Things First. You'll, you'll hear that as we read it. It's all about Christ and Him crucified. Um, in verses uh, 18 through 25 in chapter 1, we learned that in the eyes of the world, the church's message of a crucified Savior just looks weak and foolish. And then last week in 26 through 31, in the eyes of the world, again, the only ones who become followers of Christ are weak and foolish and despised and nobodies. That's what the world thinks. The message of Christ appears foolish. The members of Christ's body appear foolish. Well, Paul just figures he's going to finish the circuit this morning. <laughs> And he's going to talk about the ministers of, of Christ. So you've got the message of Christ, the members of Christ, and then there's the ministers of Christ. And they too, in the eyes of the world, can look so foolish for seeking to stay true to proclaiming Christ and him crucified, regardless of what the world says about us. As we read the text this morning, I'm going to ask you to look for three things. It really jumps out in the text. I don't probably even need to ask you this, but, but would you look for the priority of Christ-centered proclamation? And don't just think of this as what happens at this pulpit or what we pray happens in this pulpit. Put your name on that. We are all called to be Christ-cross-centered in our proclamation. Look for the humility of being cross-centered people. And be listening for how that humility really comes to bear. So be listening for how God wants to use weakness in our lives. And then would you look for the necessity of cross-centered power so that people's faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Okay? Would you stand? Let's read this as we stand. Let's honor the Lord in standing, getting up out of our seats. Um, even as we're reading, would you tune your heart already to be leaning into the text, already be saying, Lord, I'm not here to be just a listener. I want, I want the word to speak and change my heart, and I want to act on what I learned today. I think so, those things are good to say right at the beginning, don't you? Hear the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I remind you, as we're going to pray, this is not a gathering for strong people. Aren't you glad? I don't know what's wrong with us. We wake up sometimes, we think, well, I can't go to church because I, I just feel too weak. Oh, that's the only ones that gather here. We're, we're all just weak. We act like we're strong and that doesn't help. Isn't it a relief to just say, I'm weak, I'm needy, God loves us, pour out your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we're so glad that you lean into us. We're not always leaning into you. And we're so glad. We're so glad that you're faithful. Like we sang today, our, our grip on you can grow weak and even seem to fail. But we're so glad that your grip of grace on us prevails when ours fails. God, please change us. We don't want to be cross-centered in name alone or as a glitchy Christian phrase. Please, 
Please make us cross-centered in proclamation. Please make us cross-centered as a people. And Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Please, please, would you display cross-centered power in saving sinners and sanctifying saints. And may you get all the glory for it. And this precious church receive all the joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, about 37 years ago, you know when you get old enough to start saying that there's 37 years ago? Well, it's humbling. Our, uh, our middle son turns 30 uh, next week. So then, you know, 64 doesn't, it sounds old, but what makes you sound, it sounds older is you're going to have a middle son who's 30. Yay, yay, yay. About 37 years ago, I worked as an analyst in the Employee Relations and Human Resource Department of Shell Oil Company in New Orleans. <laughs> I'm sure where are you going to go? Billy did that? Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I was probably the dumbest on the staff. Um, just, <laughs> I just don't know how the Lord directed me there, but he did, and it was all a part of his plan for my life. A lot of that job involved doing interviews of potential new employees. So I did a lot of interviewing. Interviews can be awkward for many people. I don't know about you. But because, you know, like it or not, they require some degree of boasting about yourself. And, and you've got to set yourself apart from other candidates. It's not a place. It's not a place to want to look very weak, wouldn't you say? No one wants to reveal their weakness because they're needing to convince the interviewer why they are the best candidate for the job. Yet, a consistent interview question is this, and I ask this question a lot. What is your greatest weakness? Things get even more awkward when you ask that. What is your greatest weakness? Somewhere along the line, and this was going on years ago, it happens even more now, um, people saw this as an opportunity to try to talk about their weakness as a strength. Sort of a humble brag, I guess, is what you might call it. I would often hear answers like this. My greatest weakness is that I just work too hard. <laughs> or... My greatest weakness is that I just care too much. Oh, that's, that's, thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> you big liar. You know what I mean? You know, <laughs> and I would have been the same. I would have been the same. Um, in other words, I have no weaknesses to speak of. Well, I guess in the world of work or politics or entertainment or sports, Weakness is not seen as a strength, is it? But in the life of a cross-centered Christian, it's way different. In the life of a cross-centered church, it's way different. Weakness is a strength. Weakness is actually the platform God uses to put the saving power of the gospel on display. You want to experience the power of God? Be thankful for weakness. Because that's the place God wants to meet us to experience divine power. Our main point this morning is this. It's in your notes. God calls us to be cross-centered people who trust him to use our weakness as a platform to display the Spirit's power in the proclamation of the gospel. So don't separate those two. I don't know about you, I, I'm, I can be very naive and short-sighted and, and just dull. Uh, I can want the Spirit's power and have no, no, no necessary attentiveness to, am I wanting the Spirit's power for the proclamation of the gospel? Or am I wanting the Spirit's power just to, 
to break the monotony of my life or to give me some entertainment or, or to take away the weakness because this weakness is keeping me dependent upon the Lord. I'd really like to be more independent. <laughs> so, so he tells the way we pray. God, take away the weakness so I don't have to walk by faith. It's just that our, our, our ways of thinking are not always cross-centered. And so that's the whole point of the morning. I think that's the whole point of the text, that God would make us cross-centered. And it starts in the first point, a decision needs to be made. A decision needs to be made. We, we don't become cross-centered people by osmosis. You have to decide to do that. Like, like Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions, you have to resolve to be cross-centered people. And so let's first notice what Paul did not do. You see that in the text. He said, here's what I did not do. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He, he wasn't determined, determined to use the rhetorical tricks of the trade. He has no intention to try to manipulate his audience, to play on their emotions, or to merely entertain them, or to earn their approval, or to gain a following. He's, he's very clearly saying, this is what I'm not going to do with, with my life, with my time. This is what we don't want to do as a church. We don't want, to, we don't want to, to, to tailor our message to, 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 to the lowest level so that we can conform it to the desires of the world. The Corinthian culture sought out their entertainment through eloquent and charismatic orators. So you might think, well, I, I can't really relate to this because, you know, you know this, today's, it's, it's not like we go hear speeches for entertainment. Well, well let's carry out the principle of it. These people were as passionate about their rhetoric and about hearing rhetoric as entertainment as people are today about going to see Taylor Swift or going to see the Dallas Cowboys. So you've just got to, you've just got to get this sense. There's something in the human condition that knows we were born for something bigger than what we're living for. There's, we were born to be in awe of someone, of something. And so we tend to pay good money to go be in awe of things. And the same thing was happening. So nothing is new under the sun. The same thing was happening in Corinth. And those pressures are pressing on us today. So when Paul refers to words of eloquent wisdom or lofty speech or wisdom or plausible words of wisdom, he has in mind techniques, techniques of presenting a soul-stirring, emotion-producing, fame-building speech. He was, taking, he was talking more about style than he was content. He was talking more about how these people were ultimately seeking to make a name for themselves more than they were interested in improving the lives of their listeners. Rhetoric was the basis of education and credibility in Paul's world. It was, it was a social dividing line. So if you want to think of different things of, of prejudice and racism and, and oppression and things like that, even though there was this glitz and glamour to go hear the orator, oh man, you guys, there was a lot of sin involved. There was a lot of prejudice and demeaning people and marginalizing people. Isn't it funny how, the, how you choose to find your entertainment can actually be a form of prejudice about someone else that you don't think measures up? Just wild. The human heart without Christ is so wild. It was, it was a, a basis of education and credibility. It, divided, it was a dividing line between the upper class or the smart, cool people and the working lower class of simple, ordinary people. But it wasn't just about entertainment. It was, just, it was about expressing superiority over those considered to be the lower class. And it happens today. It happens today, whether it's about your education. <laughs> I mean, people get murdered after football games because you root for the wrong team. Wow. We see it today in advertising, political speeches, closing arguments in courtrooms, TV talk shows that try to convince you that even though they're saying nothing, they're trying to convince you they're saying something so you'll keep listening. 
in comedians' monologues, in TED Talks? How about pop music? <laughs> you just think there's a lot of art artistry going on? I think, well, there is, but I think, I think something else is going on. And I know I'm getting to be a grumpy grandpa. So, so disclaimer, here comes a grumpy grandpa statement. But in pop music, I think they use a lot of the flashing lights and fog machines and choreography to keep you listening because their songs don't say anything. Amen. Okay, I'm sorry. For all those of you who are music musicians and you've been dance and everything, more power to you. I don't know what I'm, let me just get out of this and keep going. At least in the days of Corinth, there would have been arguments worth listening to. Some orators actually showed off their intellect and vocabulary by arguing both sides of an issue equally well to wow you and confuse you. <laughs> so, but it kept you wanting more. Here's, here's, here's something about the ever, uh, uh, not evolving, devolving, the ever corroding mind. We're supposed to be getting smarter, but all of our smart is killing us. How about this? Um, we want to be entertained. We want to identify ourselves with talented people, but so much of what we call entertainment is mind-numbing. At least back in those days, it was mind-stirring. We're being entertained by being numbed with binge-watching things. And, you know, we, we were made in God's image. We were meant to think great thoughts of God and of his glory and of his work. And we've shriveled up into just 60-minute reels and stories. Almost as though to, in order to gain the biggest audience, we have to dumb everything down that we say or sing. Think about it. We live in a world where you're actually just it, kind of hypnotized. Has, has anyone, I'll just confess this, has anyone besides me found yourself and you're going, well, it was kind of an interesting little, little reel or story. And you watched it and then you found yourself scroll, scrolling up. Have you ever, have you ever gotten 30 minutes pass by. And I just entertain myself with numbing my mind. God forgive me. And these influencers, they're not really helping us, are they? They're just highlighting how great their life is and how rotten mine is. So, and yet, give me more. I mean, what is wrong with us? Then and now, they valued charisma over character, style over substance. And they wanted to be followed by people more than they wanted to be faithful to God. So now we're creeping in toward the boundaries of the church, aren't we? It's just so easy to do the same thing as a church. Wanted to be followed by people more than to be faithful to God. So there is a huge temptation in the ways that the world, the, the, the ways of the world can affect our worship of Christ. And Paul resolves, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. Paul knew that there's a big difference between making disciples for Christ versus making a name for himself. D.A. Carson says it so well, it's in your notes. Most of us go through life worrying that people will think too little of us. <laughs> so true. Paul worried that people would think too much of him. Paul did not want people to leave a meeting saying, what a great preacher. Paul wanted them to leave the meeting saying, would you say it with me? What a great Savior. Oh. You know, y'all, even if the doctrine preached is true, a presentation that puts the spotlight on the presenter, here's what it does. It's willing to accept a, the substitute of power of personality 
in place of the power of the cross. Paul was not devaluing wisdom or intellect. I mean, look at what a dude. I mean, this guy, he knew some stuff. He wasn't devaluing the importance of working hard to craft sermons that are true to Scripture and understandable and applicable to life and express love to people and brought glory to God. He wasn't against understanding the culture, but he never changed his main message. Regardless of what he talked about, he kept hammering the same nail. And may we hammer that nail too. The hammer's been passed down to us. The nail of the gospel's been given to us. And now it's our turn to hammer that nail again and again and again. Instead, he says in verse 1, here's what he, he did. He proclaimed the testimony about God. In other words, his worldview was God-centered. So let's start there. His worldview had God at the very center of all things, which is good because he is at the center of all things. And he proclaimed it. It wasn't just this worldview that he held in an academic or intellectual way. He proclaimed it. The, the testimony about God that Paul is talking about is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so that's why I'm highlighting proclaim because I just don't want you leaving here thinking, well, that's for our current elders and the elders that are being evaluated, possible future elders and pastors that God is raising up for them. It is for them. And we don't want you to accept anything less. But this is for you too. And here's why. To proclaim speaks not of just the craft of preaching or the, the, the work that needs to be done to present God's message in a God-honoring way. He was talking about being a herald of this good news. It was not only good news that should be spoken, it was good news that is delighted in. I get concerned, I get, so let's talk about marriage. I get concerned when I see husbands and wives just existing together, and I don't see them delighting in each other. They have a marriage certificate. They, they live at the same address. So they've got a, a committed relationship. But there's not this delight in it. And what Paul is talking about is, is that when believers are sharing our faith, that doesn't mean you have to be a, a more emotional person. God's wired me that way. You're not, you don't have to be that way. But you delight in things. You may share them differently. Some of you delight in a good steak. Some of you delight in a sports team. Some of you delight in your career and your vocation. And you speak differently about the things you delight in. You just do. You may speak quietly about them. But you got a big smile with, on your quiet face. You know, you just do. And that's what he's talking about here. This was good news to delight in. When, if you've been here a long time, somebody told me when I was raising the boys, when they were very young, they said, listen, a good parenting verse is where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a parenting verse. That's not just, that has, it has application in many other ways. And this man told me, he was an older dad, his, his, his kids already had left the nest, and he just taught me lessons learned, he said. <coughs> He said, my boys saw me express more passion for hitting a, a game-winning double than they heard me express passion about a savior who bled and died for me. They heard me get, get more emotional about their grades or their lack of grades than I was grateful for their growth in godliness. Paul is saying, this is a proclamation. This is a heralding of good news. Good news that we happen to be very glad about. Amen? And don't we want our kids to see that? Don't we want our kids to see that dad and mom delight in each other? Because marriage is a gift of God's grace meant to display the gospel. Well, you'll hear more of that. You'll, you'll hear plenty of that in just a couple of weeks. So let's keep moving. Then he goes farther in verse 2. He wasn't just God-centered. 
He wasn't just determined to be God-centered. He was also determined to be Christ-saturated. God-centered, Christ-saturated. That's a good way to live. So verse 2, he says, I decided, I resolved, I constantly am meditating about this. This is a hill to die on. To decide to be cross-centered. This is a hill to die on. He decided to what? Know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His preaching ministry was not to make much of himself. He wanted to make much of Jesus. There is an old song we used to sing. I haven't sang it for a long time. It's just, a, it's just old. But I can't remember who sang it. But the, the line in it says, I want to make much of you, Jesus. I want to make much of your love. I want to live today to give you the praise that you are so worthy of. I want to make much of your mercy. I want to make much of the cross. Oh, that's what Paul is saying. They just put it to music. Paul refused to preach a crucified Savior by using the platform of being a cool personality. We resolve to tell people the one thing they most urgently need to hear. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. When was the last time you just said that simple sentence to someone? We point them to the man who was so beaten and bloodied on the cross, it's hard to tell if he was even human. We point them to him hanging there and we proclaim, behold the man upon the cross, our sin upon his shoulders. Behold the horror of sin. See the righteous wrath and judgment that sin deserves um, be, in, in, be afflicting the only son of God in our place. See where justice and mercy meet. I think that was in one of our lyrics today. See God and sinners reconciled. See full and final forgiveness. See righteousness reckoned. Peace paid for. A new humanity raised up. A new family established. The promise of ultimate healing for every wound. The drying of every tear. The satisfaction of every good desire. Behold the death of death in the death of Christ. The crushing of the serpent's head. A promise of everlasting joy. The reverse of the curse in the new heaven and earth. Oh, proclaim it and enjoy it. Thank you, Jesus, and how the world needs to hear it. But it doesn't mean that the cross was all that, that, that Paul talked about. Paul's going to be, speak about so many topics in 1 Corinthians. He's going to talk about division in the church, which is that we're in that section. He's going to talk about divorce and remarriage. He's going to talk about singleness. He's going to talk about sex. He's going to talk about lawsuits among believers, spiritual gifts, what love is, and so much more. But he does not speak about them as standalone topics that could be reduced to just moralism. And that's what I'm, I'm concerned about happening much in the United States. We're, we're, we're thinking that the cross and the gospel is just something that we use to try to get people in the door, to get them saved. And then we detach the gospel and we start teaching moralism. The cross is to be the center of every teaching we have. And that's what Paul is talking about. That's what I'm wanting to make known. Nothing but Christ. Regardless of the topic. Regardless of the topic. The marriage retreat, you're going to hear about how the gospel and marriage are really good friends. How about this? If anyone's struggling and you've lacked peace, the peace of God recently, how have you gone about having it restored. How have, just practically, that'd be a good conversation to have, wouldn't it? Are you just saying, God, would, I'll just wait for the feeling. Well, God's very kind. And God loves to give us the experience and the feeling that is the fruit of faith. But I think there's a better answer than just waiting. Here I am, God, I need peace. Would you help me feel peace again? God said, I will. You know how I will? 
Let's go back to the gospel. <laughs> I can't talk about it without talking about the gospel. Where am I getting that? So you look it up. You go test this. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 talks about being justified by faith. In what? In having peace with God. Why? Because Christ paid the price for our sins on the cross. There's no more enmity between me, the sinner, and the holy, holy, holy God of all creation. Jesus paid it all. I now have peace with God because of Christ and him crucified. And now I can know that I can have the peace of God because I'm in a right standing with him. I've been adopted as his son. Jesus paid the highest price and shed his blood to adopt me. That's when peace is restored. But it doesn't happen apart from the gospel. Do you see how we can become very, we can be very shriveled in just reducing as, as though all we are is this body of emotions. God wants us to love him with all of our mind, soul, and strength. And he loves to give us the feeling of peace. But it's always going to be associated with the gospel that won the peace for us in the Son. Amen. He's calling us to decide to not look at any decision or any controversy or any emotion or any tragedy or any joy apart from looking at them through the lens of the cross. This doesn't mean that, listen, I think, I think the, it probably happens today in the church world, it sure happened in Corinth, we, we don't want to have mastery of the text in order to be popular with people. You ever known people like that, that they, they really got to know their Bible well, but it was so that they would be more popular with church people. No, we want to be people who've been mastered by the text. And because of that, when we are proclaiming things, it's because the fire of God's love is burning in our hearts. <laughs> There's such a difference. You guys know the difference between a preacher who just preached to inform you, but you don't even think he likes people. And the preacher who's been preaching, and maybe he's not a very great preacher, but by golly, he loves us. Well, we want, to be, we want to handle God's word with, with as much care and reverence as we can. But, oh, God forbid that in the proclamation of the gospel, there's not the power of love being communicated. Oh, this is such a great text. By being cross-centered, Paul was set free from the temptation to try to be a charismatic personality and instead was willing to be a crucified preacher. For us, just crucified people, people who are daily taking up our cross. So that even means, so this goes into the next part about being weak. So to be cross-centered, so let me, okay, first. Have you decided to be a cross-centered Christian? If yes, that's great. Have you drifted from it, though? Have you been more emotion-centered? Have you been... More job-centered, more, more focused on what you don't have, more fearful of what you do have being taken away. Maybe it's a good day to renew the decision to be cross-centered in all things. Which means God's going to use weakness. God's going to allow weakness because it is the best platform to reveal his power. Let's see what he has to say about that. Second point is devote yourselves to being cross-centered people. And that's in verse 3. Paul tells us that we're not only to be cross-centered proclaimers, but we're to be cross-centered people in the way that we live. And he uses the example of his life to show us that being cross-centered people means that we trust God to use our weakness. So there's no one in here that doesn't have some weakness. Many of us had weakness in parenting this week, even this morning. 
You know, our marriage is not strong, not where we want it to be. There's weakness in our marriage. There's weakness in our health. There's weakness in the culture. There's weakness in the government. There's, a, there's no one in here that isn't touched by weakness. Every one of us is a candidate for the divine power of God today. Isn't that good news? And that weakness is the platform that God wants to use. That's where he wants to meet us this morning. So let's keep going on here. Paul said that when he was with them, he came into Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. This is the apostle Paul. What did he mean by weakness, fear, and trembling? Well, we'll talk about the practical and the emotional and the physical about that in just a second. But I first think it's important to just lead off with this thought that our weakness and in, and in even our suffering, what is it really all about? Well, if we're going to look at it through cross-centered lenses, Paul gives us a hint in Philippians when he cried out to know Christ more. Do you know what he said? Do you remember what he said? Golly, it's been a long time since I've prayed this. I was so convicted at this point in my study. Lord, I want to know you more. I want to know the fellowship of your suffering. I want to know you in the fellowship of your suffering. So in my weakness, am I seeing that my greatest need is to fellowship with the one who was the premier example of being weak in order for us to make us strong? Death and weakness and suffering, he said, worked in him so that life could work in other people. So that's a, there's, there's a mission to weakness as, as given by God. There's a ministry that he wants weakness to accomplish in our lives and for the good of other people. So when Paul shows up at Corinth, he didn't arrive as the superstar of Christianity. So again, just picture this, guys. It's like, let's just, like, like Hollywood or some New York City or whatever. You know, Times Square, however you want to see this. That's how people arrived in Corinth. It's with their, their chariots, their, their Mercedes chariots. I don't know what it is. I don't, that, that's, how, that's, that's how they arrived. And here comes Paul not looking anything like a superstar of Christianity. He was weak. It was likely that his health had been compromised by repeated acts. Why don't we just use the language of the time? Paul was a victim again and again of mob violence. Pr imprisonment, false imprisonment. The book of Acts describes his life and ministry prior to coming to Corinth. So here's a little overview of Acts. In chapter 14, in Iconium, he was almost stoned to death. In, Ly in Lystra, he was, he was stoned to death. He was dragged out of the city and he was left for dead. Some theologians think he had died and that God actually raised him from the dead. In Philippi, in chapter 16, he and Silas were beaten with rods and thrown in jail. Remember what they did there? All hail King Jesus. <laughs> they were worshiping in their weakness. In Thessalonica, another riot broke out, but this time he was able to escape to Berea. And though he escaped, he had to live with this on his conscience, that his friend Jason, who he was <laughs> staying with, he was beaten because he hosted Paul. In Berea, Paul preached, and there was another riot that Paul was able to escape from. So then we get to Acts 18, and he begins to preach, and here we go again. More rejection, more reviling, the stirring up of another riot. And <laughs> Paul was just a man like you and me. How many beatings do you have to take before you just say, Working for Shell Oil seems a lot better. <clears throat> Didn't seem quite as dangerous as what I'm doing. What did the Lord do? He met him in his weakness. He says in chapter 18, verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. <laughs> Don't be silent. 
I'm with you. I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. They weren't saved yet, but they were already chosen by God for salvation. Fearful and weak and trembling, we would be too. Almost every time you open your mouth, there's a riot. And either someone you care about or you, you get hurt. So no wonder Paul spoke of coming to them in Corinth in fear and much trembling. But this is where I just felt like the Holy Spirit would just want to kind of hover over this. There's a little phrase here. Paul sees his weakness, his fear, and trembling as positives. Do you? Not because he loved pain, but he loved to see God use his weakness to put his divine power on display to save sinners and change Paul's own heart. So this is a little phrase. Paul was fearful, but he didn't fear the fear. And I think that's what's plaguing a lot of you. You've got fear. But it's not just the issue that you're afraid of that is the worst fear. You're fearful of your fear and what it's saying about you. It seems like it's fear squared kind of a thing. But Paul didn't fear the fear. Paul didn't see weakness as a blemish on his life. Do you? I mean, really, honestly, I think many times when we're experiencing weakness, you know, Satan hates you. All the demonic world hates you. They're going to try to convince you that your weakness is a blemish. Your weakness is your failure. Your weakness means you are disqualified from humanity. You're disqualified from ever being a good mom or dad. You're disqualified from ever being a good pastor. Your weakness is a blemish. And God would speak out boldly. He would say, no, it's no blemish. It's a place where I want to bring blessing. But you can't run away from it. You can't run anymore. Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I'm going to do something about it with you. How do we know that? Well, here's a couple of passages there in your notes. This is in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. He, again, he's, he's very, being very honest about his weakness. Listen to what he says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Wow. You know what, you know what some of the, the, the theologians and grammar guys say? He was so despairing that he thought about ending his life. You struggle with depression? So did Paul. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But God, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. He says a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 12. Read that, read along with me with that. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's not a blemish. It's a blessing. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Talking about boasting in the Lord. I'm going to boast more gladly in my weaknesses, not because that's where I'm staying. I want so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Read that last sentence with me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it wasn't self-pity. It wasn't commending himself by demeaning himself. 
Because all of that puts a focus on him. He just wants people to know that the truth and love and power they experience in the gospel is not because of the kind of amazing person Paul is, but the kind of amazing God Jesus is. That's what he wants people to know, that his confidence wasn't in his strength, but in God's love and power. He trusted God to use his inadequacies, anybody got those? In a way that would demonstrate Christ's sufficiencies. Trade you, right? That's what God said. I'll trade you. Your inadequacies, my sufficiency, we make a good team, right? It's the greatest thing. Paul asked God to remove his weakness, just like you and I do. And I think it's probably one of our biggest errors in prayer. That doesn't mean you don't pray for healing when you're sick and those kind of things. But Paul asked God to remove his weakness, and God didn't do it, did he? Instead, God gave him power to trust him and to obey him and to rejoice in him through the weakness Are you just wanting the weakness to go away? Or are you wanting God to meet you? It's such a big difference. I want the weakness to go away. I'm not really concerned about communion with God. I'm not really concerned about experiencing his manifest presence and falling in adoration and worship at his feet or being empowered to meet people who... Listen, the, the, the biggest thing we have in common with lost people is weakness. And we try to get rid of it? No wonder our witness is so impotent. It's at the point of weakness that we can, we can talk heart to heart with lost people. Because they're weak too. But they don't have Christ. And they're able to say, what's the difference between my weakness and your weakness? Well, it, the answer's not in me. I have no confidence in myself. My confidence is in him who loved me and died for me. And here comes the cross right at the center again. Oh, some great quotes here by John Owen and Philip Hughes. John Owen says, The duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Rather, they are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. That means they're bigger than you can imagine, right? God's not wanting to give you just a little help today. God's wanting to open the windows of heaven where you're worried and where you're weak. Oh, come for prayer today. God wants to pour out his spirit in rivers of living water to, to, to give satisfaction to your thirsty and weary heart. They're proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. We do not have the ability in ourselves to accomplish the least of God's tasks. This is a law of grace. When we recognize it is impossible for us to perform a duty in our own strength, we will discover the secret of its accomplishment. But alas, this is a secret we often fail to discover, I would say, or remember. Philip Hughes, the abject weakness of the human instrument serves to magnify and throw into relief the perfection of the divine power in a way that any suggestion of human adequacy could never do. The greater the servant's weakness, the more conspicuous is the power of his master's all-sufficient grace. Aren't those great quotes? Precious ones, God-dependent weakness serves as a platform for God to put the power of the cross and the ministry of the Spirit on display. But we only experience divine power when we're living on divine mission. So there we go back. Have you decided to be cross-centered people? How many times do you want divine power, but you have no... You're nowhere close to living on divine mission. That's where God's power is going to be. It's living on mission for him. (laughs) Let's just keep going. Last point. I have three minutes. (laughs) So, So let's pray for divine power and miracles right here. Desire to be filled with cross-centered power. Desire 
to be filled with cross-centered power. So Paul was weak in his body. He was tempted by fear. His speech and message were not plausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the spirit and power. And what he means is, is as he proclaimed Christ and him crucified, God the Holy Spirit took up his preaching ministry and filled it with the power to raise hearts that were dead in sin, power to give new life, power to take out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts tender toward knowing God and loving him and obeying and worshiping him and making disciples for him. Has that happened for you today? Paul did not use persuasive speech as a tool of manipulation to try to make you feel something or to make you believe something. You ever heard that old ditty? It says, a man convinced against his will remains a man unconvinced still. Persuasive speech and charismatic style leaves the so-called converts vulnerable to a more clever argument, a more impressive presentation, a more charismatic personality, or essentially the, the uh, oh, you guys, what is it called? The, um, what's happening? The deconstruction, is that it? There's some very persuasive deconstructionists out there. What's the hope and guarantee? That they're not just hearing Billy Ray's or Alan DeSherry or Hugh Robotham. That they're hearing God himself speak through his word. That they see Christ and him crucified and him raised and glorified. That they're experiencing the very active presence of the Spirit doing a quickening work in their lives, a work that they could never do by themselves. But God began the work, and God did the work, and God gave the power. That's how we stand against deconstruction and all of the, the, the things, because the most convincing message of the world can never change the heart of a reborn Christian. That's the power of the cross that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of men. He doesn't want, he didn't want people to be impressed with Paul or following Paul. He had no interest in people hanging out on his every word. He, he wants their faith to not rest in a preacher or a pastor, but in Christ alone and him crucified. It's so possible, guys, that people can manipulate feelings and change opinions but they can't change the heart. Even if they do change someone, this brought back something that Jan used to tell me about my life. She used to tell me that when, this was back, you know, we were dating when I was in college. And she'd come over to the apartment and I'd change, I had rearranged the furniture. <laughs> 10 days later, she came over to the apartment. I rearranged the furniture again. I mean, within one month, I could have rearranged the furniture like three or four times. <laughs> I didn't know how she did it, because I'm, I'm, so, I'm a doofus. I was just like, is God giving you prophetic words? No, you're rearranging the furniture. <laughs> you, you've got to be depressed because you're doing everything you can to change the outward things. Are you doing anything about your heart? What are you doing about your heart? That's what the Spirit does. That's what we can't do, what the Spirit does, what the Word does, what a cross-centered view of life does. So God will give cross-centered people, cross will give, God will give cross-centered power to cross-centered people who are proclaiming a cross-centered gospel. There's the summary of today. Just one last little point. Because the gifts of the Spirit are going to be talked about later. In this context, I don't think Paul is talking about being a gift-centered Christian. Mm -hmm. We believe in all of the gifts of the Spirit if you're visiting with us today. But you come and grab me by the short hairs if you see us becoming gift-centered Christians. If you see us becoming miracle-centered Christians. You know why? What's the biggest miracle you'll ever experience in your life? Salvation. Did you guys on that side hear this? Salvation. Yes! Brad, stand up and say it. We're all saved. 
Christ. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Or you could be saved today because the price was paid. Sounds like a goofus. Anyway, but the salvation. Salvation is the greatest gift ever. It's, gonna, it's where you're going to experience the greatest power of God that you'll ever experience. It, it, your salvation makes the healing of a leper look like child's play. But you know what it does? I believe this is what it does. I believe we go, wow, if God gives that kind of power to make us Christians, then that gives me expectancy and faith to believe that God gives power to do miracles and to bring healing to. But guess, guess where it goes back to? Eric, you come on up. You know where it comes back to? That the power is cross-centered. Does that, does that, you know, and I just didn't grow up that way. I grew, I, my young days of being a Christian were, were in what I would call unbiblically charismatic churches, where there's a lot of talk about the gifts, but they were detached from the cross. Detached from the cross. So let me tell you this. Many of you have heard this story before. Just to give you an illustration, Michelle. Is Michelle here today? She's not. She's not. Well, this, I was going to do this for her. But she requested this. Michelle, this is for you. Oh, you guys, I don't know how many years ago it was that um, the Lord was putting this gospel centrality in my heart and uh, just that image of cross-centeredness. And so years ago, I think it's about 15 years ago, I told the church, you know what I wish? I wish, because I was wearing glasses back then, and I said, you know, God bless you. I wish what I could do is to go to an eye doctor. So so that'd be like Blake. You know, I'd go to see Blake. And I'd say, Blake, can you do LASIK surgery? And Blake would say... Yeah, and I would say, well, but you know, I don't want to see better. I don't want to, I, I don't want LASIK surgery because I want to see better. Can you like do LASIK surgery that just emblazons the cross on both eyeballs? Because I'm just so sick of seeing the world. I'm so sick of having the cross over here and interpreting my world just like this out of my natural eyes. And I'm, I just feel, what would it be like, you guys, if I could just just have the cross as my lens of interpretation. First for me, to remember there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. But then it would change the way I look at you too, wouldn't it? Okay, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. So, that, so the next week I came to preach, and this was on the pulpit. I was losing my mind 15 years ago. <laughs> it's worse today. Um, but I'm going... Why, why is my glasses case on the pulpit? So I said, please open your Bibles to blah, blah, blah. And, and while, while people were opening their Bibles, I opened it and there was something inside. So would you close your eyes for a minute? I'm not going to scare you. I'm not going to go boo or anything. Okay, would you close your eyes for a minute? Okay, would you open your eyes? Can you guys see this in the back? Blake, the eye doctor, can you see this in the back? Can you, you can't. Uh, let's talk after service. If you can't see this, uh, somebody gave me some glasses without any glass lenses. It's the cross. They're cross-centered glasses. That's a sweet smile, sweetheart. But isn't that, but isn't, sweetheart, that's the way, that's the way we live the Christian life. That we, we constantly are thinking about Christ and him crucified for our own hearts. But then when we look at all the problems in our world, it's still the same thing. I'm going to interpret my problem with my marriage through a cross-centered lens. I'm going to interpret the problem in our society with cross-centered lenses. I, I, it's always Christ and him crucified. Let's stand. I want to invite our Alex and Anthony and Janie and Sarah to come forward. So guys, we're going to sing, um, but it's not just for singing. This is a time to come pray. And listen, there's no one in this room that doesn't have something, a weakness that is discouraging you like crazy, that you're, you, you're, you have fear and you, you have fear about your fear. 
And all God wants to do today is meet you in your weakness. He wants to touch you with his presence and his manifest power because of what Jesus has done for you at the cross. He wants to, be, to show you he's actively present with you today. And one of the wonderful ways he does that is prayer. And, when, and many times it's praying for one another. To, we've got precious people up here. Or you don't even, you know what? When's the last time you just got on your knees and you bowed down and you just said, here I am, Lord. Would you fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit? I'm not asking you to take my weakness away. God, would you come and be with me and give me the strength I need to live the Christian life in spite of my weakness? so that you'd be glorified and that others could behold that the power that's going on in my life is from you. Come and pray. Come.